Good morning, everyone. I did better with taking the mask off the first service. It's a new art that I'm learning and that I'm thankful to soon forget. Um, but it is a joy uh, to be with you. Thank you for coming out uh, this morning. And we will turn to Leviticus 7 and uh, focus on the word here in a few moments. Um, and thank you for coming today uh, with the weather. It looks clearer now than it did um, after the last service. But it was a, a day similar weather a couple of months ago uh, that I found myself walking to McDonald's in Spryfield, uh, which is a regular habit of mine. It's something that I feel church planters should do, be in the community. So like McDonald's is my office away uh, from my office in the basement. Uh, so I was walking to McDonald's and yeah, weather similar to this morning. If you were to maybe turn down the wind a little bit, if you were to think like that way, but also turn up maybe like the rain and wetness mixed in with the snow, that would describe the weather. Um, by the time I got to McDonald's, I was like covered in like one side of my body with like snow and ice and side of my backpack uh, and almost didn't go, almost didn't go because of the weather, almost didn't go because I set out uh, to walk from our place like the 10 minutes um, our place to McDonald's, and like two minutes in, realized I forgot my mask. So I had to like turn around, go back home, get the mask. Like, I should just stay home. Well, what's the point? Um, and I was feeling like this burden to get work done, uh, to actually like do office work at McDonald's and not have conversations. And uh, there's the risk. Somebody might want to talk to me. And that, you know, that sounds like something a church planner shouldn't say. I should want people to talk to me in the community. But was feeling this tension of like, I do need to work. Uh, and of course, after when I did the whole routine of like the social distance line and proof of vaccination and brushed the snow off and sat down, somebody talked to me. Uh, two tables away, uh, this guy just talking to me and just whoever would listen began complaining. He said, this is the worst breakfast sandwich I've ever had. Which to me is very sad because I love the breakfast sandwich at McDonald's. It's the best thing on the menu. Sausage and egg McMuffin. That's my go-to. Yeah, great. No breakfast sandwich like it. But it was two o'clock in the afternoon. It's a bit risky. But he was complaining that this is crusty, it's an awful breakfast sandwich. And I, as a good maritimer, I kept the conversation going with the weather. It's like, oh, kind of like the weather today, it's miserable. And he says to me, like, kind of like our whole world. I was like, whoa. And to myself, our conversation's going deep now. Uh, we're talking about the condition of our world, the problem of evil. So I was trying to think, all right, like, let's keep this conversation going now. I was starting to get excited. I said, so do you think the world will improve? And he looks at me, um, Neil, he told me his name was, and that's when he said what I did not expect. He said, no, I don't think this world is going to get any better. And if I could, I would kill myself right now in front of you. And then I began to pray. I was like, whoa, God, did not expect this conversation. Help me. I, I began to discern pretty quickly with Neil that that threat wasn't real of, of taking his life 
but there was a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of addictions uh, in his life, uh, a lot of hurt. Um, years um, from his teenage years, he told me the story, he told me his, his wrestling with God and, and really like at times wanting nothing to do with God uh, anymore because of the hurt in his life, because of his addictions, because of the feelings of, of aban- abandonment. And I was able to, to press in and, and remind him, because uh, he did have some of a church background, that even if those who claim to know God drift, God is faithful to those who are his. And like God doesn't abandon us. And even he, he draws people to himself. And that's like the work of Jesus on the cross is reaching to those who wanted had nothing to do with him, uh, who were killing him. So great conversation with Neil that day. At, at the end, he was cheery. He was waving and like shouting to me from the other side of McDonald's, like, Andy, it was nice to meet you today. See you next time, Andy, like waving from across there. So I'm, I'm still looking out for Neil like every time I go to McDonald's and uh, pray for that. Pray for uh, me to see Neil again, for us to start to have conversation more. And one exciting thing he said is like, oh, when you guys start your church in Spryfield, because I told him that's what we're doing, we're planting a church here in the community. Uh, when you start, maybe I'll show up. Um, that's why, not just like mere church attendance, but that whole conversation, that's why we're starting a church in Spryfield. We, we see with every individual uh, the uniqueness of the community of Spryfield. And it, it, it's, it's so unique you're, if you're from Atlanta, Canada, from Nova Scotia, perhaps you've heard of Spryfield in the news before. Um, it is a community that has high needs. 48.2% of kids in Spryfield live in what the government considers poverty. Um, it, it's a diverse community. There's so many immigrants uh, and refugees, some that we've gotten to know. And just that, that sampling of what, what I gave you, that conversation with Neil is why we're planting. We want people to find themselves in God's family, have a new heart, uh, and, and a new home um, to find out really the reason they were created, the, the one who loves them, and to be part of God's church. Uh, so you may see around you today, um, I'm not going to keep talking about Spryfield now, we're going to go into the sermon, but around you there's these cards uh, throughout the room, and if you want to find out more about what we're doing, you can fill those out with your contact information and get them back to me. Now you could check one box, like I'd just like to stay informed and get your newsletters, and we send out like a, a monthly MailChimp um, and quarterly, I, I think, um, print newsletters a few times a year. Uh, but also, we are looking for partners, those to come alongside of us as we're planting. And there's three si- significant ways you can do that, uh, Grace Baptist. You can pray for us, um, and I really do appreciate that. Pray for Neil. Pray that I would see him again. Pray for Spryfield, for this church that we're starting. Uh, and pray for um, ourselves uh, as a family uh, in this time. So pray for us. Uh, we're also looking for people. Uh, after the last service, I had a great chat with somebody who used to live in Spryfield. Uh, so it's cool to see that relationship. But if it's ever going to be the other way, if, if you're planning on moving to Halifax or Spryfield specifically, we would love to have a conversation and have you involved, but potentially with the church plant. Uh, we need people. Uh, right now, there are 26 of us being sent out from PAX North to plant this church. That's the launch team. Of those 26, 
14, I believe, are under the age of nine. So we're planting a kid's church, which is exciting. Uh, we have Corey here with me today. He's uh, on our launch team, has become such a, a dear friend and brother. Uh, when we were leaving the house yesterday, our kids at the door were like, oh, bye, Corey, have a good time in Prince Edward Island. And I noticed they had forgotten about me. Um, not bitter. But it is really good to like, see the, the relationship and friendship. So thankful for you, Corey. I'm glad you can be here today. Yeah, so we're, we need prayer. We need people. The people are the church. But also we do need financial uh, partners as well. Uh, it has been so good to see God being faithful to us every step as we go out uh, to plant. And even your story, Grace Baptist, has been helpful for me. I have this book called Church Planting for Today uh, that in, in some ways has stood the test of time. It is a book that was like written in the late 70s, early 80s, and talks about church planting in Canada and lessons we can learn from churches that were planted. And one of the churches featured in that book is Grace Baptist Church of Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. It talks about your roots and your origins. Uh, and it's great now to see you coming alongside of missionaries and, and planters. And as we plant this church in Smyrfield, another Fellowship Baptist Church, uh, it would be great to have you partner financially uh, with us if the Lord is calling you to that. So whether it's more intentional prayer or maybe a, a sending of yourself as a person or financial partnership, if you're interested in that, please also check that box and would love to do a Zoom call uh, or meet you sometime uh, and share what we're doing. So fill out those cards, give them to me at the, the back after. I uh, would love to meet you. One other joy I have in church planting uh, is I'm so looking forward to planting and knowing Spryfield without the pandemic um, being present, without the social distancing, without the, without the masks, and moving into that season. Because we moved to Spryfield just before the pandemic started. And we were one of those families, like early days, that were pretty terrified of the virus and did not know what was happening to our globe. Just it seemed like a lot of people were getting sick and a lot of stuff was shutting down. Uh, you may remember, if you've like, watched YouTube, there was like this video that went viral of this guy who showed you how to like, Lysol your groceries appropriately or like, wash your fruit and separate the table. Some, some of you know what I'm talking about. We did that for a few weeks. And we can look, look back at that and maybe laugh or see, oh, it wasn't maybe necessary, but we didn't know at the time. And so we would also, like, when we ordered takeout pizza, think, you know, what is on this box could potentially kill us. So we were, like, careful with the pizza. Yeah, we still really enjoyed having those times, especially when you couldn't go to a restaurant to get pizza in, watch a movie with the kids. And we loved eating Thornhill pizza. That was the place we went to as we moved into the city. Unfortunately, Thornhill pizza became a victim of the pandemic, and it was a restaurant that had to shut down. So we tried one of the other pizza places in Spryfield, and one day I ordered from Crystal Pizza. And as I ordered from Crystal, uh, we looked at their menu online and saw they had a Chicago Jack pizza, which sounded amazing. So ordered it, I show up to pick it up, and they're like, oh, are you here for the Canadian pizza? And I was like, no, we're here for the Chicago Jack. And they're like, oops, our mistake, uh, let's correct this for you, just wait 10 minutes. 
So they made us up the proper pizza, and when I went to pay, they're like, here, have both pizzas. Uh, and they didn't need to do that, but it was a great customer service experience. So I thought to myself, I'm going to order again from Crystal Pizza, and maybe I'll occasionally stop by for a slice uh, on a lunch break from Crystal Pizza, and again, get to know people in Spryfield and make this a regular habit. And we've gotten to know Alan and Carmel, the owners of Crystal Pizza, who are from the Philippines, but are also believers, and occasionally do Bible studies in their pizza place, and are excited about our church plant. And why I share that story is because as we're looking at the text here, there's this like spreading and, and this like viral aspect, if we could say that, the, the sense of like our sins and our confessions have a great impact, greater than we can perhaps comprehend or imagine. So as we're reading, as I'm reading for you, Leviticus 7, 1 through 10, and we look at the guilt offering again, we're going to consider those two things. Our, our sins have a greater impact and our confessions have a greater impact. Leviticus 7, verse 1. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering. And its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar, and all its fat shall be offered. The fat tail, uh, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them uh, at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering, and there is one law for them. Uh, the priest who makes atonement uh, with it shall have it. Uh, and the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering uh, that he offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil uh, or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, um, in February, Herb Hunter was here sharing and also sharing on this offering, the guilt offering. He looked at it maybe from the perspective in chapter 5 and 6 of the one who is making the offering. And here today we see that same guilt offering, but really from the perspective of the priest, how it is sacrificed and how it is received. Good to refresh ourselves though on what this offering covered as we consider this. Our guilty sins have greater impact. Our guilty sins have greater impact. So let's re remember what this offering was. And uh, you can read it. I won't read it for the sake of time today, but it's chapter 5, 14 to 6, 7. And it was really three um, categories of sins that were covered in the guilt offering. The first one was unintentional sins known to you, but you didn't mean to do it against the holy things of the Lord. There was a lot to keep track of of the rules, like don't walk here, don't touch this, uh, and maybe you did something unintentionally. 
I think the greatest example of this that I could think of in the Old Testament in the Bible was the story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The Ark of the Covenant, the most holy object uh, in all the Jewish worship, uh, that box that was placed in the Holy of Holies, it had been captured by the Philistines. And there's this awesome story about uh, all of the pain it caused them and um, just ruined their idolatry as it was there. So it's sent back to Israel. And Israel takes it and is trying to get it back to Jerusalem. And they have it on a cart. They're not doing things the way that uh, it's prescribed in the Old Testament, moving the ark. And as they're not doing it the way it should be, it's on a cart and it goes over like this bump. And Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark to steady it. That sounds so instinctive. Something shakes, you reach out to steady it. And God killed him because he touched the, the, the most holy object in Israel, the, the Holy of Holies, which he was commanded not to touch. Most likely he would have clearly known that. That's this kind of sin. You know something and yet you do it like instinctively or unintentionally. You're like, oh yeah, I, I know this, but I did it. So you would bring a ram and 20% to the priest. Or perhaps it's something you didn't know was a sin. And then you found out later it was. Maybe you walked somewhere you shouldn't or touched something you shouldn't. You, you had no idea it was wrong. But then maybe as you're hearing the word of God read by a priest and a few weeks later and he's reviewing the laws and you realize, oh, I shouldn't have been in that spot or I shouldn't have touched this thing. I, I did a sin unintentionally. Um, or I didn't bring the right sacrifice for the sins. Something happened and you didn't know, but now you know. You are to take the ram and, and make atonement um, in that sacrifice for that. Or there's sins against neighbors. There was this category of like whether you're robbing them with like a deposit or a loan. Uh, you know, hey, uh, I think you stole me like 100 bucks in the last payment, uh, as Herb was talking about uh, last month. Or perhaps oppression or something found um, that they lost and you've kept and are hiding it from them, which is theft. You are to return that item. You are to make that payment right. You are, you are to stop the oppression the day you realize your guilt and make 20% more restitution uh, to that individual. Bring the ram as well now for your sacrifice. If you couldn't get it to that person, I think some commentators say there's a sense if you could bring it to the priest and the priest would make sure that person got it uh, when they came. Now all of that review shows us this was actually like pretty costly, both with the sins you didn't really mean to commit, even though you knew it was wrong, and the sins against the neighbors. There's like a 20% extra on that. And that's the point of the guilt offering, even having to bring a ram for something you never even knew was wrong when it, you did it. Like, this is serious. A, a ram, I don't know the price of rams uh, these days, but I'm sure it's somewhat significant uh, to bring a ram from your flock uh, without blemish, especially one of the good ones, and sacrifice it, and 20% for a lot of this stuff. And that's the point. Our sins are costly. There is impact, massive impact potentially on individuals around us, on our, our community, on others, uh, and our own selves. You know, for, for example, you know, th th that neighbor, that friend asking you for a loan or for money, they become indebted to you, that's probably not for fun. 
you know, hey, just could I have a thousand dollars just, you know, to buy some crystal pizza? You know, it's not not that. Uh, like, I, I'm not sure I'm going to make rent this month. Could you spot me and I'll make sure, like, you know, if we could do some payments and work it out, right? For you to twist that, whether intentionally or unintentionally, somebody who's already in financial hardship can really impact them and set them back for years. If you find somebody's phone, like, oh, cool, a phone I found in the, the parking lot. It's an iPhone. I might be able to flip this on Marketplace. You know, somebody then asks, like, did anybody see my phone in the parking lot? You make that choice to conceal that. You know, people really do depend on their phones. Maybe they're waiting to hear back on a job offer or, you know, phones are just sometimes expensive to replace or all of their family photos are on there and they haven't backed them up. There's important conversations. Maybe the last texts from a loved one who's passed away. There's, there's, there's significance when we defraud and, and rob people. And sometimes we forget that. But if we really, really want to see the impact of our sin and how costly it is and truly understand it, well, we have to go to the cross. We have to go to Jesus, the Son of God, sacrificed once for all in our place. If we want to see how serious sin is, it is so serious that God the Father who eternally had fellowship with His Son, who loved Him, and the Son eternally loving the Father and walking together, and never in eternity past not knowing communion with each other. The Father delivers the Son for us. Kills Him. The Son cries out, My God, why have You forsaken Me? For us. That is the cost of our sin God is bringing His sacrifice for us. Not for His unintentional sins. He, he has never sinned, but even for our unintentional sins. That is the impact of our sin. And when we, we see that, we really see that we're not like the Israelite who can just bring their sacrifice and make atonement. That's just a picture. When we really get what our sin is, we realize we can't make atonement for it. We can't cancel out even our little unintentional, what we might even dismiss as flaws. We can't cancel those out against the eternal God who loved us and created us and wants the best for everyone in the world. And, and, and we mess that up and, and sin against Him so much. When we really understand the cost of our sins, we have to come, have to come like that song Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, it says, uh, referring to God. It says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Uh, could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, not even a ram, or 20% more, nothing 
Or simply, to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That can be your feelings in, in, in the service. If you're new, if you don't know the Lord, um, and you're hearing the gospel, and, and hearing this about unintentional sins and the need to make it right, and our sins have consequences, and you're, and you're hearing, yeah, I'm beginning to realize stuff I've done this week, truths I haven't made known, things I've held back, could have huge impact, and it has hurt family and friends, and perhaps events are coming back from years ago, and it's just been snowballing the unintended consequences of that. There, there, there is a, a, a sense of guilt and even like despair. Go to God. Understand the full weight of your sin. The impact of your sins is seen on the cross. It's such an impact, you can't make it right. You can't make yourself right with God. But He has given His grace to restore you. Not just make it even. Not just like make things okay. But to now call you his son and his daughter. To give you the inheritance of Christ. To give you heaven as your home. He has gone above and beyond to make restitution for your sins. That is grace. Trust it. Receive it. Call out to God to give it to you. Trust the gospel. And because of that, shouldn't we be, if we're Christians, because we've received so much grace, because we realize the impact of our sins, shouldn't we be known as those who are the best at making restitution, um, at, at, at righting our wrongs, because we've been restored to the Father? Uh, when, when people see that, do, that happening, that restitution, in a remarkable way, when we realize the impact of our sins and our wrongs, what a beautiful opportunity. People ask, well, why are you doing this? Why are you going above and beyond? Why did you not charge me for the extra pizza like, to, to, to share? Because I've been given so much by the Father. Our sins have a greater impact. Our guilty confessions also have a, a, a greater impact. Here in chapter 7, as we see the sacrifice from the priest's side, there's a, a lot of boring and kind of gory details. We talk about like fatty kidneys and lobes and entrails, and like that all gets sacrificed for a food offering, and somebody gets the skin, and these people get to eat the grain and the, and the, and the loaves. And what, what, what's the point of that for us, especially today? Because like we didn't bring our fatty kidneys to be sacrificed today of our rams we're in a different relationship to to god and to grace how does this impact us what what can we take away well as we see how the sacrifice is made and the blood is sprinkled we really see how the offering gets distributed and handed out this was a food offering that the priest could eat it the priests together could eat the sacrifice uh, in the holy place it says the Grain offering, if it was brought, sometimes for these sacrifices, if you didn't have a ram, you could bring bread or grain, uh, the equivalent of the value of a ram, to offer instead. If, so if somebody brought bread, that priest could eat it. If 
somebody brought the dry ingredients and the oils, the whole tribe, not just the priests, but all the sons and daughters of Aaron could, could eat this. What we're beginning to, to see here, and it happens over and over again in Leviticus with these sacrifices, when someone comes with their sacrifice, when someone comes with their confession, is that it's not just a private act between them and the Lord, and it's, it's done. There, there, there's restitution for sure between them and God, but there's an overflow, maybe secondary consequences, you could say, of the act of sacrifice and confession that benefits others. One sacrifice is made, and essentially a whole tribe is blessed with, with food and, and ingredients, with, with a hide to do whatever you do with the skin of an animal. Work it with leather. Make it into a blanket. I, I, I don't know, I don't do that. But there was, there was benefit right, for these individuals, for the priests, for the tribe. And that, that principle is over and over again in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system. This multiplication of blessing when a sacrifice is made, when someone is honest with their sins. I think we can learn from that. You know, there, there is the obvious. Those neighbors would have been provided for. You come back with the money you robbed them. You, you stop the oppression. Those who were once robbed are now restored and recipients of grace. And more so, these priests are provided for. And this carries through into the New Testament. We can't just dismiss this as like, well, that was good in the Old Testament. The New Testament gives us different occasions that I want us to pay attention to of the benefits of confession for others. It says in 1 John 5-10, through 10, these words, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we what? What is the first thing it says happens once we walk in the light with God? We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the Bible is very honest with ourselves and our souls and our, and our sin. Sin is darkness. We all walk in darkness. We all have sin and yet we are called to the light where God is in no sin. If we, if we just say, there's no darkness here. We're liars. But what we do is we confess our sins. It says if we, if we confess our sins, he cleanses us. But if we walk in the light, which is the first way that this concept's introduced in the text, if we walk in the light, if we walk in openness and honesty and holiness where God is and how he walks, what's the first thing it lists for us as this takes place? It isn't the blood of Jesus cleanses you from sin. I mean, that, that, that's true. I don't want to pit them like too hard against each other. 
But the first thing John wants us to hear as he's inspired to write these words, as you walk in the light, you have fellowship with one another. We walk well together when we walk in light and openness and honesty. It should not shock you that you are all sinners here today. That you have all done things this week. I have done things this week that I would rather keep in darkness than openly share. That there are probably some things that you've done in your life that you hope no one ever finds out about still. That you feel would ruin you. There, there's an appropriateness to all this and um, it was beautiful at the end of the, the first service as the church covenant was being read. There's some really good principles in that. Pay attention as you read it together about how much do we share and with whom. There, there, there's this you know, confidentiality, honor. We don't want to gossip and overshare, but as we share, we walk in light. And there's freedom. There's freedom there. Where, where you know you can share someone your, with your struggles, they will pray for you and they will restore you. And you don't have to bear that guilt alone anymore. One of the quickest ways, though, we, we can crush this is to and like, like crush like people wanting to confess and wanting to step into the light, is when they do, we, we beat them up and gossip about them. Like I, I, I used this illustration, I checked in the first service, like that there's no teacher or anyone working in the, in the school called Brenda. Imagine there's this hypothetical, fictional Brenda who works in the school and she comes to you and says, oh, I feel so, so awful. I just yelled at one of the students today Johnny and lost my patience and I feel so bad. And you could like approach Brenda and say, "You fool. You know, how could you ever do that to uh, a student? No one should act like that around here. How dare you?" And you could then maybe go to the staff room and let everybody else know that Brenda yelled at one of the students. Or and you know, if there's proper policy about all this like honor that for sure but as what would help Brenda more is for you to relate to her and listen and pray and, and direct her into how maybe you should make things right with that student uh, or the class who witnessed that and to share your failings as a teacher as well and maybe as she's confessing you're mindful of something you did to one of the students this week and haven't brought to light and haven't made right. And you have the opportunity to share that with her now. And we see the, beginning to see the unintended impact of our confession moving us into holiness and to connection with one another and light and relationships are restored even more with one confession that isn't just like beat up and gossiped about. Because you know, if that happened to Brenda, you're sure not going to want to share anything either and keep everything hidden and in darkness which is not a good culture for any family or any church or any business so we lean into walking into the light and confession we don't want to be known as those who beat up and squelch those who want to step into the light even if they're not doing it perfectly 
James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins. That's a command. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's this sense in like that connection in the passage of this is actually talking about like physical illness. I mean, there's a spiritual aspect too, but physically, and I have seen it as a pastor, somebody is hiding something and it eats them up inside, not just their soul, but their bodies. I, I've seen guys hide their scandal. And it's not until after a visit to the ER that they finally come clean uh, of what they've done. And thankfully, the healing of the community, the healing of themselves physically, can begin to take place. It, it's a dangerous thing sin and thing to hide your sins from anyone matthew 5 these words from jesus he says so if you're offering your gift at the altar just like leviticus 7 if you're there and you remember that your brother has something against you not that you've maybe done something but your brother has something against you leave your gift before the altar just like drop it and run jesus says go First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge uh, to the guard and then you're put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is saying, even if you're like on your way to court and you think like, this is done, we're not getting anywhere, like this relationship is severed, it's going to court. He, he encourages you still push into making things right with your brother. That's what's best. Leave your sacrifice. Go make yourself right with your brother and come back. Jesus knows the urgency we have to have in confession. And from the Old Testament, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It, it, it's the gospel that, that, that Jesus, I, I heard this once in such a, a powerful sentence, that, that Jesus bore in light. You know, it was the middle of the day, noon, when he was crucified. He bore in light. He was naked and outstretched, vulnerable. He bore in light the sins that we hide in darkness. When, when we bring sin to the light, we honor the heart of the, of the gospel and even the actions uh, of the gospel. God knows our sin. He knows it fully. And you might push back and say, but we're not under the law. You know, I don't have to take my ram and stand before a priest. Jesus is my great high priest. He and I got a good thing going on. I don't think I need to confess to anyone else. You know, I going to come to the Lord's table, make things right with God vertically, so therefore, you know, the horizontal is going to be okay. You know, Jesus did die for that. It's forgiven. Why bring it up? Why make it an issue? And those things are true. Jesus is your great high priest. You're saved by grace. We're not under the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. And yet we also have 1 Peter 2, 5, where he reminds us, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, we as good Baptists we historically have called this the priesthood of all believers. So in some sense, and it's very, very true, you don't need to go to a confessional or to confess to someone to be right with God, to earn your salvation. And yet, very clearly, as we've just read in multiple areas of the New Testament and Old Testament, uh, uh, like James 5, confess your sins to one another. It's, it's there, to one another, and pray for one another. That is commanded by God. And I think it's commanded to us by God to experience His grace, to walk in the light. This is not a very profound theological thought. God's not dumb. He's not. God has made us. He's made you. He knows how you tick, and part of that's how he's designed you. He has designed you not to be alone. Even like Adam in the garden alone, it's not good. That man is alone, God said. Eve is created. Um, it is not good for you to live in isolation. That's soul damaging. God's not dumb. He knows. It's easier, and, and this seems backwards. It's easier for you to like privately be very honest with him. The one who can kill your body, the one who could cast you into hell except for the grace of Jesus. He knows exactly the full depths of your sin. He's aware of it, and, and he's got full power to, to punish. And we're, we're very open and honest with him privately, but we find it very difficult to say to your brother and sister, this is what I did. I'm sorry. But God has commanded that because he knows there's a special grace in our heart that's worked out. He knows there's this freedom that, that's expressed when we walk in that light. Um, a lot of you here I don't know today. That, that it could be that you have not been walking in confession and apologizing and making restitution for years. And I'm concerned for the, how that could be damaging to your soul. That darkness that has crept in and, and has numbed. God has designed us to help one another by hearing and receiving and making confession. And I, I think this is so beautifully illustrated. I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from this book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Nazi Germany who was executed shortly before the war ended. But he, he wrote about the Christian community and he wrote about the power of confession and what it does to sin. Hear, hear these words. In confession... The breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of unexpressed, of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community or a good church. In confession, 
the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all of his evil. He gives his heart to God, and he finds the forgiveness of all of his sins in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. The expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin. It can no longer tear the fellowship asunder. Now the fellowship bears the sin of the brother. Others bear it. He is no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin in confession and handed it over to God. It has been taken away from him. Now he stands in the fellowship of who? Of sinners who live by the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now he can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. He can confess his sins in this very fact, or this very uh, apt, find fellowship for the first time. The sin concealed separated him from the fellowship, uh, the church, made all his apparent fellowship a sham. The sin confessed has helped him to find true fellowship with the brethren in Jesus Christ. It's a little lengthy what, what I shared there, but there's, there's so much goodness in it. Um, I, 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 I love that. He can now be a sinner. He can now be in fellowship with sinners. Sometimes those on the outside of the church will make that argument. The church is full of hypocrites. People who show up and pretend they're not sinners. Pretend they have it all together. Pretend they're perfect. We're never called to that. We, we, we are never called to hypocrisy. But we are called to own our sins and our brokenness, our need of grace with one another. Just like in the Old Testament, I unintentionally sinned. I wronged somebody. I, I found something and I was slow to give it back. But I've given it back. I'm making this right. When we step into that, there is such freedom. And what an opportunity for us to step into that at the Lord's Supper. That is a command to do this together as a church. There's a community sense God wants in it for us to discern the body, which probably refers to the church, our relationships with God and one another. And we press into the words of Jesus to make things right quickly. Now all of this could crush you, like it crushed Martin Luther before he knew Jesus. When he was a monk in Germany, he would go to the confessional booth for hours at a time, trying to think of all the unintentional, guilty sins he could confess and confess them. And he would walk out of the booth and then remember something and walk right back in. He would be in there for hours. It actually like, drove the other monks crazy. But I think he was being honest with the impact of Leviticus 7 and, and, and the rest of the Bible. If, if, if it is... I need to confess all of my wrongs, everything that I did unintentionally. We would be slaves to that. Our, our zeal would no respite know, as Rock of Ages says. 
But your hope today, friends, is not can you confess good enough or did you confess in the right way and not an inappropriate way? Um, have you ever done anything or never, sorry, never done anything unintentionally wrong, right? Like, like if that were your hope, we would all be hopeless. But our, our hope is in the God who gave himself for us, who knows all of our sins and has removed them as far as the east is from the west, who has shone his light into our hearts. And because he's brought us into the light, we can walk in that light freely, uh, knowing that even if our confessions aren't perfect, God's grace is perfect. And that should move us further into confession, even in the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Grace Baptist, uh, for participating in the worship of the Word with me. And I do want to thank you for your ministry. E- even in the time uh, of COVID, and I-, I do want to confess, not sin here, but confess a particular joy that I've had because of your ministry like one degree removed. So with COVID and the pandemic, my parents who are elderly uh, haven't been in church a lot the last couple of years, uh, maybe just a, a handful of times. So they make their Sunday morning breakfast and then binge watch church services uh, and, and ministries. And I'm, I'm sure there's even some of your own members that are there in this category of just watching from home and thank you from watching from home. Thank you, mom and dad. I know Whenever mom knows I'm speaking at a church, she always watches. Um, It's the thing that my mom does. So hi, mom and dad. But I do want to thank you for that, Grace. It may may seem like a small thing, but but it's been meaningful to my parents to be able to enjoy worship with you online for two years. Uh, They've been doing that. And I pray as restrictions lift that you begin to see the glimpses of God's grace, that what's been happening online filters into real relationships. And people know Jesus because they've watched a live stream. Uh, so thank you for your cameras, your lighting, all, all that maybe seems insignificant and can go unnoticed. Thank you for it, Grace. Uh, that one aspect of your ministry. Uh, personally, it's been meaningful uh, to see that ministry to my parents and to others. So may I pray for you. And again, would love to have you fill out those cards and uh, track with us uh, newsletters or, or explore partnership together. So I'll be at the Welcome Center at the back and you should just give me that card if you filled it out. So let, let me pray uh, before we go to the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you that you know our sins and you sent Christ to pay for them and you've removed them and he rose from the tomb and has given us his life. And you now love us. And you now call us your sons and your daughters. We are your sons and daughters. Heaven will be our home. That new Jerusalem, we'll we'll worship that Jesus we sang about who died in the first Jerusalem. As we come to the Lord's Supper, God, wow. This this grace, this light we've been invited into. Use this, this bread that we touch, this cup that we drink, that, that's kind of like, in some ways, the sacrifice. Not that this atones for our sins, but there's a physicalness to this. A, a consumption, a touching, a feeling, a smelling, a tasting God. You've given us this as a reminder that our sins are once and all paid for. So, 
move us, God, into being honest with you and others about our sins and our wrongs. And may we rest in the grace we have in Jesus. May both those things be true. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, church.